You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 29. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. This is your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. I'm here to share my fiction with you fresh off the writing desk. So, let's get right to it. This week I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 3 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you haven't caught up with this story yet, go back to Episode 24 to hear it from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In Chapter 2 we met the heroes of our story, Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf. Both are trained and licensed wizards. Kate is an air mage, specializing in illusion, while David is a life mage. Together they run the Magic Affairs section in Precinct 9, one of several dozen neighborhood divisions within the Metamore City Police Department. Kate and David were called in to investigate a body discovered in Hunter's Hollow, the darkest and most dangerous corner of the street. A man, or something approximating a man, had been burned to a charred husk, and from the look of things, his chest had exploded outward in some kind of magical overload. Our detectives inspected the crime scene in conjunction with the Lothanasi Order, the elite paramilitary organization of monster hunters. Field Commander Janus Starson suspected that a supernatural predator may have been involved in the man's death but a closer examination of the body suggested that it had only been briefly investigated by these hunters before being abandoned. They would have to look elsewhere for the cause of the man's death. In hopes of narrowing down their investigation, Kate performed an augury on the body, calling up images of the history of the alley where it was found. In her vision, she saw the explosion that had created Hunter's Hollow nearly 50 years ago, a malfunction in the nuclear pocket reactor at the base of Trent Tower. But before she could see the death of the man in front of them, the augury was stopped dead. Someone had placed a magical occultation on the alley to hide whatever had happened here. Returning to the precinct headquarters, Kate and David immediately found themselves summoned to the captain's office. There they were confronted by a group of armed and liveried guards, escorting a short, wiry old man in a brown equestrian uniform. I am Count Xavier Halloway, Imperial Minister of Intelligence, he told them. And you, my good detectives, are going to find out what has happened to my daughter. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 3 For a long moment, Captain Montgomery's office fell silent. Kate stared at Count Halloway as if he were an unsightly wart, which, to her mind, wasn't far from the truth. Halloway stared back at her with a cold, measured appraisal that most people reserved for used skimmers and household appliances. Kate found her eyes darting back and forth between the Count, who clearly expected some sort of reply, and the Captain, who really should have known better than to throw the most notorious prankster in his precinct into a room with a self-important twit like this one. Kate had an overwhelming desire to put a glamour on the little man, giving him the head of an ass, for instance. 
but she knew that her career would never survive the experience. As usual, David came to her rescue. Your lordship, he said, sweeping smoothly in front of Kate and showing the noble a stately bow. What an honor it is for you to grace our humble station with your presence. Kate copied his bow as best she could, keeping her lips firmly sealed. I followed your career with great interest, David confided. The tales of your heroism in the Battle of Stuthganks have reached us even in my homeland of Quinardia. Count Halloway's eyes widened. Truly? Aye, my lord, David said. I remember sitting by the wireless as a boy and hearing the reports of your campaign. To an elven lad growing up in the forest of Elfwood, it all seemed like a great adventure. Now, of course, I know better. You and your men are rightly honored for your bravery and your sacrifice. The Count smiled, a broad, genuine smile. Kate thought it might crack the man's face if he held it for too long. Master Elf, you honor me. He gave David a small bow. I did my duty, nothing more or less. As you say, my lord. David gestured to the chairs in front of Montgomery's desk. Perhaps we could sit down and you can tell us how we may assist you in our duties. Oh, of course, of course. Please sit, both of you. Count Halloway took one of the chairs, and Kate and David followed suit. My daughter, Mysteria, is my only heir, the nobleman said. She is a a free-spirited girl. Kate stifled the urge to laugh. Misty Halloway was one of the most notorious dilettantes in Metamore City, and her active support for the Church of Hedonism had put her on the front page of every gossip rag in the Empire. Kate was pretty easygoing when it came to religion, but she had a pet peeve about social parasites who were famous for nothing more than being famous. Apparently, Count Halloway had his own issues with Misty's behavior, because he visibly restrained himself from further commentary on her lifestyle. Four weeks ago, she was supposed to have gone on a ski trip with some of her friends and retainers. Last week, I learned she had sent a double in her place, and that none of my staff knew where she was. We made a few discreet inquiries through our own channels, but we have turned up nothing. Wait a minute, Kate said, holding up a hand. You're the Minister of Intelligence. Spying on people is what you do— You're telling me that in all the Empire you don't have anyone you can send to track down your own daughter? Halloway's mouth twitched in displeasure. I'm afraid the Ministry is under special scrutiny of late. There were those in the Imperial Senate who imposed my appointment, and they're seeking every opportunity to discredit me. If I were found to be using Ministry personnel for such a private matter, it would reflect poorly on me and my party. And so, detectives, I come to you. Kate frowned. Before she could say anything further, David spoke for them both. I see. That is very unsettling, my lord, but I fear you may have been misinformed. My partner and I only have jurisdiction over the Ninth Precinct. Missing persons cases are handled by the Special Investigations Division, which covers the entire metropolitan area and has much greater resources. And a much higher profile, Count Halloway said sourly. If I go to special investigations, every tabloid reporter in the city will know that something has happened to Mysteria. My staff will be flooded with ransom demands, real and fabricated. If she has been kidnapped, the criminals might panic and kill my daughter. I understand, David said gravely. How can we help, my lord? 
Your captain tells me you're good with tracking spells, the Count said. I want you to track down my daughter and make sure she's all right. I'm granting special enforcement powers to you and your partner for the duration of this case. You'll be able to go anywhere in the Empire and receive the full cooperation of local law enforcement. Kate sat back in her chair, stunned. She'd barely left the city in twelve years, and Count Halloway had just handed them a free pass to the Imperial Intelligence community. Whatever agency directors reported to him were going to be pissed. The Count held out his hand, palm upward. One of the bodyguards stepped forward and handed him a heavy brown envelope. He passed it to David. Everything you should need is in there, he said. Executive orders, security passes, and detailed information on my daughter's activities. I've also included a few of her personal effects and a recent blood sample. Kate's eyebrows shot up. That'll be a big help, she admitted. Sir, my lord, if Misty hasn't been kidnapped, what do you want us to do when we find her? Ascertain her safety, Halloway said. If she appears to be in immediate or serious danger, bring her back to me. Persuade her if you can. Arrest her if you must. Otherwise, if her circumstances appear safe and secure, return to me with a full report. The Count stood, and Kate and David did likewise. Detectives, I thank you in advance for your help. I have every confidence in your abilities, and your discretion. He gently emphasized the last word. Obviously, this case takes priority over all your other efforts. I expect to hear from you shortly. Of course, your lordship, David said, and bowed. The Count bowed in return, though not as deeply. He nodded curtly to Kate and Montgomery, then swept out of the room without looking back. The bodyguards shut the door behind them. There was a brief, heavy silence. What a sanctimonious jackass! Kate sputtered. Of all the... I cannot believe... Lieutenant, Captain Montgomery snapped. Kate shut up and came to attention. Count Halloway is one of the most powerful men in the Imperial government, the captain said, as should be obvious, given the extraordinary license he's just given you. And how can he even do that? Kate asked. Cap, the jurisdiction rules are there for a damned good reason. How would you feel if some outsider came into your precinct and started poking his nose into your business? Montgomery gave her a tight smile. That reminds me, how did it go at the Lightbringers this morning? Oh, right. Jurisdiction still needs to get sorted out, Kate said, a little calmer now. But it looks like it's going to be one of ours. Hopefully we'll know more once Morgan gets a look at the body. We usually do. Montgomery said. Look, I know the last thing you want to do is play nanny to Misty Halloway. I don't blame you. But I can't believe this is too hard for two of my best detectives. That got a smile out of Kate, as he had no doubt intended. So find the girl, make Daddy happy, and then you can get back to the real police work. Like trying to figure out how a guy blows himself up with magic from the inside out. Just remember, you volunteered for the job. The captain made a small gesture of dismissal and turned back to the papers on his desk. Good hunting, you two. Try and play nice with the libs, all right? Kate put on her best innocent face. Why, I don't know what you mean, Cap. I'm always nice. Montgomery glanced up briefly, gave her a look that said, You're not fooling anyone, 
then returned to his work. Most of the next two hours was taken up by routine paperwork. As much as Count Holloway might have wished it to be otherwise, a police detective did not simply drop everything when a new case landed on her desk, and Kate had several other files that needed wrapping up so that the prosecutors could take over. She also wrote up her notes on the morning's crime scene investigation and sent a copy to Agent Takahashi, particularly regarding the results of the augury. Interagency relations between MCPD and the Lothanasi were strained at the best of times, but Kate stood a much better chance of getting cooperation from the Lightbringers later if she kept them in the loop now. After clearing out her inbox, Kate opened the file on Misty that Count Holloway had given them. The papers granting them Imperial-level operational authority were unlike anything Kate had ever seen before, but they all looked legitimate. ID badges for Kate and David proclaimed them to be temporary adjunct officers attached to the Imperial Ministry of Intelligence. Naturally, they bore the signature of the minister himself. You get the feeling we're in way, way over our heads? Kate asked. David shrugged. I get that feeling every time I go drinking with you. Funny, Kate said, flatly. I'm a funny guy, David agreed, matching her tone. What's the file say about Our Lady Halloway? Kate spread out the documents, which were a collection of activity logs, photographs, written reports, and newspaper clippings. Look at this, Kate muttered. He's been having her followed. The woman's in her twenties, for profit's sake. Is it any wonder she's rebelling against everything he stands for? David picked up one of the photos, a shot of Misty taking part in a ritual at the Hedonist Temple. It was one of the public services, so there wasn't any actual sex going on, but Misty was topless and wearing only a loincloth. Do you suppose she might have run off and joined a temple full-time? David asked. She's obviously committed to the church. Kate tapped her finger against her lip, thinking, Doesn't really fit, does it? I mean, think about it from Suspira's point of view. You've got this very devout follower who's in place to inherit a huge fortune and one of the top five or six noble houses in Metamore. I don't care how serious the girl is, you're not going to just let her blow that kind of an opportunity so she can play priestess. Hmm, good point. David looked up at her. How do you want to handle this? Well, as much as my track record with them today is shaky, I think we should go to Misty's house and do an augury. If we can see what she's been up to lately, it could give us a clue to where she's gone. Then we can use the personal effects to set up a tracking spell, once we've narrowed it down to the right general area. David nodded. Sounds good. I'll put in a call at House Halloway and get clearance for us to come over. While David was on the line, Kate's desk phone rang. Katane here. Morgan's rich, velvet voice came through the handset. Kate, darling, I have the preliminary report on your John Doe. Come on down when you can, won't you? Sure thing, hun. I'll be there in ten. David finished his call shortly after Kate rang off. We're confirmed for tonight at seven. Peachy, Kate said. Let's go see what Morgan dug up on our dead guy. The Forensic Investigation Division of the Metamore City Police Department kept offices at six of the major hospitals around the city. One such office was located in a sublevel that connected the 9th Precinct Station House with Brightleaf General Hospital. The police station and the hospital were both part of Brightleaf Tower, one of the massive superstructures that gave Metamore City its distinctive layer cake topography, 
and even the sublevel was some thirty stories above the street. For Kate and David, visiting the morgue was as easy as taking a lift and walking down a long corridor. Heavy, insulated doors opened onto a large and sterile-looking room, with several examination tables down the center, and three rows of refrigerated storage lockers down the right side. On the left side of the room stood doors to the ME's office, the analysis lab where most of the morgue's sensitive equipment was located, and a second office for the deputy examiners. Another pair of doors at the far end of the room led to additional meat locker storage, and the clean rooms, where bodies were examined for fibers, hairs, and other trace evidence. A broad window looked out from the ME's office onto the examination room. Kate saw Morgan working at her desk, her long black hair falling in curtains on either side of her face, as she looked at something Kate couldn't see. The vampire noticed their approach and beckoned to them. She didn't smile, but Kate saw her expression soften, and her body language relax slightly. Most of the Ninth Precinct cops avoided Morgan whenever possible, but Kate and David had been loyal friends before and after her change, and Kate knew how much that loyalty meant to her. Good evening, my dears, Morgan said, reaching up and touching Kate's arm fondly as Kate sat down in the empty chair beside her. And how is business today in magic affairs? Annoying, Kate said. She told Morgan about their encounter with Count Halloway. Ugh, Halloway's an ass, Morgan said. My father dragged me to a few of his parties when I was younger. Kate leaned forward. Yeah? Did you spend much time with his daughter? Morgan smirked. Mysteria was seven years younger than I. We never had much in common, other than useless parents who treated us like part of the furniture. I much preferred. Well, no sense in boring you with my misspent youth. She handed Kate a sheaf of papers held together with a binder clip. Here are the preliminary results on your John Doe. Kate skimmed through the report. Any idea who he is? Not yet, Morgan said. I've sent out the dental x-rays, and we're working on reconstituting the skin from the hands so we can get fingerprints. What about DNA? David asked. I took a sample from one of his molars, Morgan said. We're amplifying it now for rifflip analysis, but I doubt we'll find any matches. Most people don't have records of their DNA on file. We'll keep an ear to the ground for any missing persons reports, Kate said. If we come across anything likely, we'll let you know. David held out his hand for the papers, and Kate passed them over. Have you determined the cause of death? he asked. You're going to love this, Morgan said. Sudden systemic dehydration. Kate blinked. Is that a forensic euphemism for somebody set him on fire? Morgan's dark eyes glittered in amusement. The fire was secondary. When living flesh catches fire, the body floods the area with additional fluid. That's why burns blister. If the fire had killed him, the tissue around the burns would have shown signs of edema. And in this case it didn't? David asked. In this case, the body is almost completely desiccated. Blood, lymph, intercellular fluid... The only areas that still had moisture were the root pulp in the teeth, the marrow of some of the bones, and the central nervous system. Incidentally, that's why it looks like the victim has no eyes. They shriveled up into tiny little lumps. Kate frowned. So why didn't the guy explode? Seems like he should have just turned into a mummy. Morgan shrugged. 
That part I'm not clear on. Something caused an intense heat in the victim's thorax and abdomen. That's probably connected to whatever caused the man's chest to explode. At a guess, I'd say the body fluids underwent some kind of flash vaporization, and the sudden gas expansion blew out the abdomen, the diaphragm, and parts of the rib cage. I've asked Agent Takahashi to run the ballistics on the bone fragments. I suspect the sternum was ejected from the body at great speed, and fragmented on impact with the alley walls. Kate winced. Holy shit! Indeed, Morgan said. I have no idea what could have caused that sort of rapid phase change. An incendiary grenade, maybe, but we found no evidence of chemical accelerants. It looks like the fire started because of that heat, combined with the desiccation. The fat in the abdominal cavity melted, and with no water to absorb the heat, he went up like a grease fire. Kate bit her lip, thinking. So, something sucks the water out of him, turns it into gas, the pressure blows out the front of his body, and a fire starts from the heat. Morgan nodded. That's my best reasoning on what happened, yes. David glanced at Kate. I think we have some research ahead of us. And not the fun kind, Kate agreed, standing. Thanks, Morgan. My pleasure, dear. Oh, and one more thing. Kate paused, waiting. A faint frown creased Morgan's brow. I did a thorough analysis of the body during the examination, and there are a lot of things that are... a bit off. Kate tipped her head. How so? A lot of little things, Morgan said. The shapes of the teeth, bone densities, the ratios of certain body measurements, the size and shape of the brain. There are certain normative ranges for these things that 98% of humans fall into. She shrugged. If one or two of them were off, I wouldn't question it. But like I said, there are a lot of them. So what does that mean? Kate asked. I have to conclude, Morgan said, that our John Doe wasn't completely human. Kate looked over at David. He said what they were both thinking. And I take it he doesn't appear to be Elvin, Sylvan, Luton, or any other mortal race. No, Morgan said firmly. I know how to recognize all the major humanoid species. This is something else. An outsider? Kate asked. Something pretending to be human but not doing a very good job of it? Maybe, Morgan said. We should know more once we get the DNA results. I just wanted to warn you. If it is an outsider, Janus isn't going to want you anywhere near this case. Kate headed for the door. Given what else I've got on my plate right now, he's welcome to it. And that's where we'll stop for this week, folks. In our next episode, Kate and David travel to Halloway Tower to begin their investigation into the whereabouts of Misty Halloway. But someone is investigating them as well. That's coming up next week. Don't miss it. Louis Lemore said, Start writing, no matter what. The water does not flow until the faucet is turned on. So let's go out back and check my meter, shall we? Here's your weekly writing report.
I wrote 5,847 words this week, over the course of 7.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 780 words per hour. As of Thursday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 192 days without breaking my chain. November was a very successful month for me, my best by far. I wrote 33,252 words over 30 days, averaging 1,108 words per day. My total writing time for the month came to 39.25 hours. Compared to October, my word count increased by 50%, and my butt-in chair time increased by 25%. I wouldn't have won NaNoWriMo this year if I'd been competing, but this is still a huge leap forward for my productivity. I've come out of November feeling more motivated and energized than ever. I'm deep into Chapter 13 on The Lost and the Least, with a running word count of 43,285 words. I'll be taking a partial break from the book for the next couple of weeks, because I'm hoping to participate in an anthology workshop in February, and I have a week to write each of my first two submissions. This is going to stretch me as a writer, since I not only have to write fast— I have to write to someone else's call for submissions. I have no idea what the stories are going to be about, but I'm looking forward to the challenge. Lastly, I want to announce here that I have two new ebooks available for pre-order. The first one is my novella, To Walk in Shadow, which you heard on the podcast earlier this year. The second is Urban Legends, the first Metamore City story collection. It gathers ten stories that aired on the Metamore City podcast— including three that have never been in print before. It also includes an all-new introduction by me, in which I tell the story of how Metamore City came to be. A lot of these details have never been discussed publicly before, so if you enjoy that kind of behind-the-scenes content, go check it out today. Both books will be released on Christmas Eve, but you can pre-order them now on Smashwords and Amazon. The links will be in the show notes. And if you're a Patreon patron at the $15 a month level, you have already received copies of both of these ebooks for free. And now, the feedback. Chris, hi. This is David Grizzly Smith, or Grizz. Hello again. I uh, was updating my latest new podcatcher and uh, went looking for Metamore City and stumbled across The Raven and the Writing Desk, and I'm up to episode seven now, so I've listened to Clean Up on level three, I think it was. That was pretty cool. I think I came across one of the other stories from that collection, too. Either that or I've read this one before. I'm not sure. But uh, it did seem awfully familiar. Cleanup on Skyway 3 has yet to see print anywhere, but it's possible that since the anthology was cancelled, other authors have been releasing their stories for it. If you ever figure out where you heard that other story, let me know and I'll link to it on my blog. Of course, I listened to to walk in shadow, which I thought was extremely well done. I just wanted to say that. I can't really say I like Ball as a character. He's not a likable guy, as he says himself. I'm not nice. I'm necessary. I see Ball as something of a soldier, if you will. He's been fighting the same war for thousands, possibly tens of thousands of years, apparently. And he's hardened to that. And brutal in defeating his enemy, which is chaos itself. The Lightbringers versus uh, Ball and his folks isn't really good against evil. It's uh, law versus chaos in uh, D&D terms. 
That's where Ball stands. He's, in fact, if you look at it, he's in the realm of chaos, yes, and he declares himself the Lord of Shadow, but realistically, he's actually bringing law into the realm of chaos. So, in a very real sense, although he's not necessarily one of the good guys, he's actually fighting on the side of law, which I think uh, in just about any pantheon, the gods pretty much have to be doing that. He's seen, I think, as a force for chaos, but he realistically is a force for law. He kind of has to be. Exactly. Ball is the epitome of lawful evil, to borrow some language from Dungeons and Dragons. Like the Lightbringers, he's trying to keep the world from falling into chaos. Unlike the Lightbringers, Ball thinks that goal can be best accomplished if everyone is serving him. Uh, I liked all the characters. I kind of get the Temple of Ball, how that worked. I liked the character of Tara, and I, um, I admire the concept, if you will, of a knowing sacrifice for a good cause. It's uh, been a belief of my own for, for a long time that, I mean, basically we're all going to die eventually anyway, and it is sometimes worthwhile to die for something that's more important than just a little bit longer life. That's really the principle of the soldier in the first place, and that's uh, the role that uh, Tara had in the story, I think. Indeed. I'm interested in the idea of religious characters whose moral and ethical alignments don't necessarily match completely with the gods they worship. We see this in our own world, of course, where people who follow gods that ostensibly espouse peace and love can commit acts of terrible violence and cruelty. But it's interesting to look at the mirror image of that. Baal isn't good, but what he inspired Terra to do saved the lives of millions. Was Terra a good person serving an evil god? I think she was. And somehow that devotion led her to do more good, even though she did it in service to an evil being. It's an interesting paradox. And I think that's probably what uh, Clyde got out of it. Having a hero named Clyde, I mean, seriously. You gotta, you gotta like somebody, a, a character, a hero named Clyde. You don't come across too many Clydes in, uh, in dramatic stories. Anyway, uh, welcome back to the world of podcasting. I also, um, I, I agree with you, with your choice to minimize the podcast part of it so you could maximize the writing part of it. I think that producing podcasts is in its own right performing art and it takes time and dedication and Writing, likewise, is not exactly a performing art. Well, it is sort of, but it's it's an art anyway. And I don't think that you can do either podcasting or writing without that being your main focus. That has to be what you focus on. Obviously, you can be very good at producing full cast drama. You can be very good at writing. You've done both, and you've done both very well indeed. But you can't do both of those at once, and lots of us out here could probably manage to do a full cast podcast, after a fashion at least, but not so many of us can write, and you do that rather well. So stick to the writing thing. I think you mentioned at one point you were talking to some production group about possibly taking over the responsibility for doing the production. Maybe in a later episode you actually talk about <laughs> what happened with all that. Having somebody else take on that responsibility for you is a wise move. 
Anyway, welcome back to podcasting. Glad to see you out there once again in my podcatcher. And uh, I will look forward to your upcoming work. Good day. Thanks, Grizz. Originally, the audio production company I was talking to is going to produce the audiobook of Things Unseen, but we ran into a problem. In order for them to work on the audiobook, I first had to record it. And if I was focused on that, I wouldn't have time to record the podcast or do my daily writing. On the other hand, if I recorded Things Unseen for the podcast, I could very easily take the edited chapters and set them aside for eventual inclusion in an audiobook, and it wouldn't take up any additional time at all. Another advantage of doing it this way is that I was able to go back to work on writing The Lost and the Least, which follows directly from the events in Things Unseen. So the end result is it will take longer before you can buy Things Unseen as an audiobook, but I'll be able to keep the podcast going in the meantime, and I can work on getting the next big book ready for you guys at the same time. All in all, I think that's a worthy trade. Thanks for calling in. Sarah Testarossa didn't have the chance to record her feedback for Chapter 2, but she did send it in via Twitter direct message. Sarah writes, I really enjoyed this chapter, especially after listening to the first Metamore City episode, Welcome to the City. I had listened to about five minutes of the new episode before I realized I really wanted to see my first introduction of Kate again. Glad I did, because it was really fun in its own right, and reminded me of more attributes of her character. It was good to see Janus again, too, and my listen to a Lightbringer Carol wasn't too long ago, so I remember more about him. Anyway, as for the plot progression, I like how the investigation of the exploded man led into the disappearance of our young characters, or at least one of them. Plus, I have a strong sense that whatever was afflicting him is somehow related to the main mystery. Maybe he was one of the surviving people who came back with powers— Perhaps twenty years later, some strange things are happening with the remaining people exposed to the power and the beings in the rift. That's my guess, anyway. But we will see. Looking forward to more. Thank you for writing in, Sarah. For those of you who haven't listened to Welcome to the City, you can find it in the Past Episodes section at www.metamorecity.com. It's in episode MCP-001. I'll put the link in the show notes. Now it's time to recognize this week's new Patreon patrons, Kiernan, Philippa, and Thomas. We are now at $194 in total monthly pledges. If we can get just two more people to pledge $3 a month, we'll hit our $200 a month milestone goal. That means a new black and white story illustration for all subscribers. Now, we didn't hit that goal during November, but we did keep pledges above the $100 milestone level, which means there will be a new bonus story on the Patreon page. This month I'm sharing my science fiction erotica piece, Last Sunset at the Golden Gate. If you want to hear this sexy story about love, loss, and the end of the world, go over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to sound off about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my handle on Twitter is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with other fans about the show, check out the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. 
The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this time, folks. Come back next week for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.